every level of um, argument, inference, and general understanding um, that's derived from empirical scientific investigation has to be rendered into the, the level of philosophical explanation and understanding where you're using logic and inference about concepts that you've divine that you've defined and understood um, beyond their their merely uh, mathematized idealized um, representations. Hello, everyone. My name is Tim Carone. I'm the host of the What's Our Future podcast. I'm a member of Society of Catholic Scientists, and in this podcast, I interview other Catholic scientists about their research, how the research fits into some of the big questions of the day in church teachings. We ex explore, I guess, Catholicism, their religious journey, what parts of church teachings they may find challenging as a scientist and why. And finally, we discuss the future of their area of research, as well as the future of faith and reason. Today, I interview Peter Copeland. Peter is a policy advisor to, to the Toronto provincial government, but mo more importantly, he is a philosopher of science. He's a trained philosopher. He works as a writer and contributor to the Catholic Conscience uh, think tank. He has developed the Philosophy of Science series, which is why I wanted to have him on, on the show to talk about philosophy of science. Um, and in that series, he talks about uh, some of the perennial themes in the philosophy of science and how they show up today. Uh, we discuss his ideas and papers. We talk about intelligence and um, other cultural topics. Uh, we also take a diversion into an alternative to the Turing test, which I call the Tommy Lasorda test for artificial general intelligence. Um, this podcast, I believe, is unique, and I hope you value it. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it with anyone you think might be interested, and let us know how much you like it by giving it a five-star rating and review. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Tim Carone with What's Our Future podcast. Today, I'm with Peter Copeland, who's a philosopher from a philosopher of science from uh, Canada. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tim. Great to be here. All right. So you're from Toronto, Canada, right? Well, that's where you were born. Where are you now? I am just outside of Toronto, the greater Toronto area, I guess you could say. Um, spent a bit of time in Vancouver, Montreal as well, but uh, Toronto is home. And uh, I actually went down to Wisconsin for the first time a friend moved down there to Green Bay. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not too far, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent about a year in Toronto on a consulting gig um, with a bank up there, and I had an apartment in Toronto. I, I love Toronto a lot. Went to a number of the different sporting venues and, and, and different places. I, it was really enjoyable. And I was actually up there in the winter, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Well... From Illinois and Wisconsin, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of comparable, but you know, if, if you were somewhere else in the states, I would find that shocking. <laughs> well, I, I spent a number of years in grad school in Arizona, where 
you know, if it got below 70 degrees in February, people were upset. So <laughs> you, uh, you, you know, when we were talking earlier, you know, in the kind of the, you know, prepare for the podcast, you said your background is athletics and business. What's the, what's the background in each of those for you? Yeah. I mean, I guess I just mentioned, uh, those things in, in saying how my, uh, life has uh, unfolded and evolved i guess um I, I never thought i would end up in uh having an interest in, in philosophy and ideas and uh public policy i you know i played a lot of sports growing up and i was nat- i think naturally suited to uh the, the business world i went to school for that um originally and i grew disheartened with it um i, I guess I'd perceived a kind of shallowness in the in the space um will be familiar to to people just you know stereotypical things status seeking growth efficiency and very you know self-oriented kind of about um domination um and I I think myself you know being a, a kind of um you know striving successful um maybe a bit overly dominant person um i you know these two things kind of came to a head for me it came into a bit of a a depression and i started uh, searching and seeking and so i started reading literature and great books um in in undergrad and, and haven't stopped and after that i went um English overseas uh, in in Korea to to teach English, and decided that I I did wanted to make more of of this love for literature and ideas. So I went back to school for philosophy, and um, pursued a graduate degree there. Uh, it was it was pretty mixed. I I did love the freedom to become a generalist, reading widely and broadly, but was pretty disheartened about academia. I, I thought, you know, I was going there to, um, you know, pursue, pursue the good life, figure out what that is and then, and, and live it out kind of a noble, noble calling. But I, I found some things there that I think are characteristic of our, our postmodern culture. Um, overall, you know, a, a deep kind of irreverence, aimlessness, um, activism, uh, you know, kind of revolutionary contempt and disdain for norms and institutions, and and really a lot of uh, I would say, unfortunately, troubled and wounded uh, peers who were kind of looking for justice through their research programs. So you know, I I, I thought I couldn't get a job in academia uh, if I wanted to um, study and write about the things I wanted to. And um, I, I went into uh, politics and public policy from there. I think it's a it was a natural fit for me, uh, practically oriented with a, you know business kind of entrepreneurial background, and um, you know you can you can also do some some high level thinking and then try to put it into practice there. Uh, and and so the the think tank space and and NGOs advocacy groups. Uh, I, I think that's that's probably where I will ultimately land. But I'm a, uh, a policy advisor for the Solicitor General, uh, law enforcement here in the province of Ontario at uh, at present. Oh, good for you. You know, there's a couple things here I circle back on with you. When I realized that I had 
to beef up my my background in philosophy and other areas in order to get a full appreciation for my Catholicism and understand the richness of it. You know, I, I one of the things I did was go back and read some of the you know, the great books, as you said, you know, things like Brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment, and others. Were there one or two or three books that have have kind of that you read in college that that kind of stayed with you? Oh, it's a great question. Um, so I, I said I, I started with great literature in college. I, I started with uh, a big one, War and Peace. Um, at the, oh the, man. Uh, my, my uncle is a lover of books and he, and he always had that on his shelf and spoke highly of it. And so I read that and, um, I guess struck by its comprehensiveness, um, both stylistically, you know, it, it's part history, it's, it's social commentary. Tolstoy is a very philosophical writer. Um, so I, I got a taste, I think there for, um, for, for comprehensiveness that, is something that I think philosophy um, really, really is all about, seeing the, the bigger picture in the whole. I also read a lot of existentialist authors. That's what piqued my interest in philosophy at first. So um, some French and German writers, like Franz Kafka and uh, Albert Camus. Um, you, you can tell I wasn't, uh, I wasn't so happy at the time. <laughs> Quite, uh, quite, uh, you know, d depressing, despairing stuff. But you know, very much capturing a lot of uh, what it is to live in uh, modernity. You know, alienation, lack of meaning, uh, isolation, individualism, um, kind of death of philosophy in search for truth. And um, gosh, what other ones? Well, I, I certainly love Dostoevsky, um, James Joyce. Read some of that as well, and um, yeah, po poetry. And and as I became a Catholic, um, realized that I always had a fondness for for Lord of the Rings, uh, growing up. And um, that was that was one of the things that when you look back, you go, oh, you know, maybe that was the one of the seeds that led me eventually to uh, to where I am now. Yeah, I think the the, the Lord of the Rings has a has a great uh, just a rich background to it and the themes that come out of it I, I i it's one of those books where i i never stop learning about the not just the story but the ideas behind it and the how relevant it is to catholicism and, and i i never I, you know i always enjoyed the the stories and i remember when my first son was maybe about three weeks old. I was always reading to him, but I, I got kind of tired of the board books pretty quickly. And so I read him the entire uh, trilogy from Lord and the Rings, and I read him The Hobbit. And, you know, I just enjoyed reading to him, holding him and reading him. And, you know, he didn't know anything. He just sat there <laughs> yeah. like a, you know, bump on a log. But uh, but nowadays, I mean, he's he, he has read it. He's very much into that whole genre a lot. And, you know, it's those books, especially, I think, looking back on them with both my sons, reading them, some of these books that you, you would think wouldn't make sense to read to a three-week-old seem to have a, a an effect on them, at least mm -hmm. I think they have. And 
you know, I, you know, I didn't read him Brothers Karamazov, but uh, <laughs> yeah. for some reason, for some reason, Lord of the Rings seemed to resonate. But let me ask you about you talked about your graduate career, which was University of is it? How do you pronounce it? Guelph. Guelph. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you know, you talked about the people there and their mindset around reverence and activism and and disdain for norms and institutions. Were they also looking for simplistic solutions to problems? I I think if you are uh, struggling a bit, um, you know, it, it's natural to to latch on to something like that. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say necessarily. Um, but I, I think today, because, you know, we, we don't have fully, you know, our, our, our question of identity and esteem and our place in the world, um, are all very caught up in, you know, our personal kind of, uh, achievements that, um, your, your intellectual, um, task can almost become, very practically um, oriented. And so, you know, naturally then you're, you're looking for something that um, will resonate, can be directly applied, um, you know, and, and then we get into, you know, questions of popularity, right. Driving, driving things. And, right. um, you know, I certainly see that in the landscape today. Um Simple solutions, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's tons of information out there as well. I think that's another thing, probably driving that um, soundbite, search for simple solutions, taglines, uh, and and that sort of thing. So you know the, it it, the intellectual project being tied especially to practical action today. You know we're we're a very pragmatic society. And then you know just just a information overload, so people want to um, to make a splash, right? And to make a splash, it has to be kind of simple and digestible, and um, so so I think that that drives some of it. But I wouldn't say necessarily you know people in um, academia or or intellectuals are are interested in that per se. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, you know my experience with some of the I think the people you were you you were around you know if I was to characterize them you know there's sort of three things one is kind of lack of critical thinking skills kind of lack of temperament and a, and a lack of perspective mm. you know they just seem to be very so focused on sort of one thing you know they sound like a word salad when they talk and when you, you go through all that, it kind of comes down to, you know, they, they're underlying this, this superstructure of their belief systems and things. You always get down to this sort of core structure that, you know, there's something that they they feel is, is wrong yes. in some way with institutions or other people. And, and I don't think they realize that. And, and they certainly, people I've talked to certainly don't have breadth of knowledge about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the depth of knowledge is, is concerning and the ability to analyze, argue, and, and keep a rational temperament and focus on learning, continually learning. 
um, and, you know, being willing to change your perspective. There's just this very hardcore guardrails that they have that they don't seem to be able to, to overcome. And, you know, I find it frustrating because it's, you're fighting not ideas, but you're fighting, you know, a mental construct, which people's projects. Yeah. Yeah, They're yes. Yeah. So now you're in, um, you're doing work with uh, the solicitor general now. Mm-hmm. Can you give us just a quick example of something you're doing? Uh, you know, in ter- is it whether or not it uses your philosophical work or not? Yeah. Um, so I work with um, the policy for the corrections side of the ministry um, for firefighters. And um, during the pandemic here, some of we worked on some emergency response. So, I mean, programming um, and corrections, um, looking at new risk assessment tools, um, you know, the the capital projects that are underway to change the infrastructure um, layout and facilities, those sort of things. Um, but I would say, uh, if I may, Tim, my, um, my real kind of uh, interest in applying the, my, my intellectual interest and certainly the faith is through um, kind of the think tank lens and um, an organization I'm affiliated with. So that, right. yeah, so that um, that organization is called Catholic Conscience. Conscience, and it's um, it's a lay apostolate founded by uh, an American, actually, Matt Marquardt, who's a lawyer, a sworn policeman, has held a, many different hats, and um, it is about civic evangelization primarily. So, so forming Catholics in their faith, particularly in its social dimensions, so they can feel confident in applying it to their public lives, be that at work or as citizens, or, you know, just talking with friends. We, we really think there's, there's a dire need for this, applying uh, Catholic social teaching, I should say, is one of the church's best kept street secrets uh, to for our sure. lives. And, um, you know, one of the, the animating, you know, kind of motivations for the organization is to cut through all of this um, polarization and toxicity that we see in the, the landscape. And I think, you know, when we look at, at Catholic social teaching, Catholicism, it, it's not an ideology. It's beyond ideologies. And political systems really, really are that. They're reductive. They, they make idols, literally, out of some, some finite goods. And um, so, you know, it's always going to leave us wanting. But Catholicism, I, I would say Catholic social teaching contains the best of, of all of the different um, perspectives out there. And um, so we think, you know, bringing Catholic social teaching to, to people's uh, minds has, has great potential to bring people closer together. Right. That's how I kind of connected with you. You know, uh, Chris Raub had, had put us together. I'd heard about Catholic conscious and I'd gone out there and then kind of right after that, Chris had connected us and I, I was really fascinated by the, the, the work you all are doing out there. Uh, it's, it's certainly unique, which is a good thing. You know, there's a lot of websites out there, which teach, you know, evangelization you know the basics of it, and, and and what do our beliefs? But this is more of a how do you, how do you start to apply it and start mm-hmm. to address, as you said, the toxicity in the culture in the church. You know, in in number of things you've written and others have out there, it just strikes me that it's. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just my 
my take on it and the reason I like it is because it's it's taking our beliefs, our catechism and things like social teaching and, and applying it and trying to drive it into the culture and getting people to at least acknowledge it and, and start to think about, you know, how, you know, why our culture is so toxic and mm-hmm. what couple, three things can they do to try to back it off and try to, you know, have that perspective and temperament, you know, that allows them to at least listen. The other thing, unfortunately, too, is it exists in, within the church, mm-hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. But I also think you what you have is, you know, is as as relevant for Catholics as it is for the culture at large. Yeah, well, well, thank you for saying so, Tim. And we're glad we're reaching some uh, Americans down there, too. It really is a difficult thing to do, but entirely worth it. Um, and so what we, we try to do is we take different um, topics, areas. We also have formation uh, opportunities for people if they want to learn how to run for office or you know, apply their faith better uh, at work and that, that sort of thing. But in our webinars, um, we, we try to take a, a topic that's rele- relevant to social life and, um, you know, kind of delve deeper into it. And so right. one we did that, that applies to what you're doing here as a, as a scientist interviewing Catholic scientists is uh, what we called the Beauty of Creation series. And so we wanted to bring together leading scientists and thinkers to discuss issues pertinent to the intersection between faith and science, and then whose impacts are felt in the public sphere. So some of the major themes were the technological paradigm in which we live, excuse me, in which our increasing control over nature challenges our interpretations of the essence of what is natural, what's good, and what's properly human. And that has major implications for civil life in, in areas such as bioethics, medicine, the dignity of the human person, state of the environment, our relationship with the rest of creation. And uh, secondarily, we, we wanted to deepen our understanding of some of the key concepts that are, I guess you would say, metascientific or metaphysical concepts that are, are very much given by our empirical, natural, scientific understanding of the world that are real hallmarks, hallmarks of, uh, of Catholic thought. And so, so these are kind of broadly, Thomistically influenced categories of thinking about the world as a composite of, of matter and form, act and potency. So, you know, not just a, a, a description of, of static present po- properties, but a, a kind of reservoir of potential, which explains the, the changeability and dynamism we, we see in the universe. Um, you know, the fact that entities are, are more than simply the sum of their parts, trying to develop more sophisticated understandings of teleology or, you know, the view that entities are, you know, kind of concrete holes that have definite tendencies, which they, they uh, can live out if they're organic or, or non, non-organic. And we also wanted to explore in greater depth some, some key organizing themes, which are uh, integrity beauty and ecology. So in Catholic thinking, God creates the world with a purpose as it has definite features that make it intelligible 
and it's in a state of moving towards perfection through our creaturely activity. So, so everything has a place in the cosmic order and can be uh, perfected or reach its potential by, by, by actualizing what is potential in it. Um, and, and that is kind of circumscribed by its given features. So, you know, for example, a seed of a certain type or, you know, human uh, sperm and egg, you know, they obviously have natural tendencies that they can become and develop into. So that's what I'm talking about there. And then integrity and ecology, integrity being, you know, this idea that it's the integration of our various uh, features with our given ends or, you know, those things that complete us that that's really crucial to understanding our moral and artistic and even technological engagement with with the world. Um, you know, it won't do just to think of happiness as, you know, serotonin levels. You know, you have to you have to think of your reason, uh, what action you're actually doing, um, you know, relationship with other people, these sorts of things. And then lastly, ecology, that's a you know, a term that's it's getting picked up in in the focus on environment these days, but it's it's been around in in Catholic thought um, for for longer. It's it's fundamentally, I would say, a kind of harmony that arises from the parts of an ecosystem. It doesn't have to be an environmental ecosystem; it can be social or you know even within your own organism of the parts working together to achieve a kind of you know, in environmental science, I guess, would be homeostasis, but, you know, you like a, like a kind of harmony, a kind of balance. And so we think, you know, looking at, looking at the world in that way, rather than the exclusively uh, reductionistic materialist framework, which is very good at breaking things down uh, into parts and understanding, you know, those, those uh, efficient causal relations, but it's, it's kind of lost the vision of the whole and in the, the, the metaphor and you know even epistemological tool of thinking about things ecologically can really help us understand the world much much better um and so we were looking at at all of these things um through interviews with our guests um and try to you know probe a little further uh, how can catholic thought uh, and its influence on the wider culture be in, improved by um, bringing these concepts into dialogue with sciences. Yeah, I I was really um, struck a lot about you know the content out there. I know you created the philosophy of science series, which I think it was in the latter part of 2021, and you had like 11 articles, you know, covering different aspects of it. But the ecology thing is, you know, that's something that that I've really struggled with a lot because I I agree i like your definition of it um it's a more holistic view it's it's the view that comes out of Laudato c my concern is taking that and and how do we use it to help solve really complex problems you know i've been working on an article i don't know where it'll go but you know one of the things you know i teach um you know i talk to students about why Things like, for example, electric vehicles, while they are perceived to be beneficial to the environment and things we should should aspire to have and to and to make available to everyone, you know, there's a cost to that. There's a downside to it from a, uh, I would say, an ecological perspective. 
I think people are too quick to jump onto the renewable energy bandwagon without understanding the downsides to this, which there are actually far more complex downsides to renewable energy than to fossil fuels in, in our society. Mm-hmm. And it's and, and, in tr- and where I really struggle a lot is with taking the, the Catholic social teaching with, say, things like Laudato Si and other writings and, and what you, uh, you, know, you all put out on Catholic conscience in trying to understand, you know, how to, what's, rather, what's the solution to, you know, say, our energy issue? Where should we be as a church, not in, in promulgating solutions, but in providing guidance for the Catholic scientists, engineers, and what they should be using, um, you know, as, as values and morals and coming, trying to come to a, to solutions. Mm-hmm. And there are a host of fairly, there are a host of problems associated with renewable energy that are in contradiction into, say, Social Catholic social teaching and Laudato Si that I'm not sure many Catholics understand or appreciate the degree of the problems. Mm-hmm. So I think what you all have out there is is vital to helping people like myself think through, you know, how can I as a Catholic scientist who sees the downsides and the uh, some of the evils associated with renewable energy you know, how do I talk about it? How do I think about solutions? What should the right solutions look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what you're, what you all are doing is, is, is kind of key to helping people like myself sort of start to think through these things. Cause you know, I found I was, I was quite unpopular when I made the comment one time in a Catholic forum about, you know, Catholics shouldn't drive electric vehicles. It's in contradiction to Laudato Si. And um, yeah, I wasn't real popular. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but, you know, you're, the work you, you know, one of the reasons I want to interview you is you had this philosophy of science series, which, you know, goes toward, uh, you're not a scientist, but you've been thinking about the philosophy of science a lot. So it's relevant to, to scientists and people like myself who are more in the, you know, artificial intelligence side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, and, and you had, like I said, 11 articles and, you know, we wanted to cover a few of them, um, you know, that, you know, you feel are probably uh, kind of key there. I'll put links to all of your stuff in the notes to the, to the podcast, but you had, I think it was five different areas we wanted to cover. Yeah. Um, the first one was around, uh, methodological assumptions and challenges, and this is sort of one of my favorite things. Is you know I, another uh, topic I got into in that same forum with Catholic scientists was you know around scientific methodology and and you know I you know they reacted like I called their baby ugly. And I was yes. like you know we, yeah it, it's 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 a limited form and it has its positive negatives, but we should be thinking about something better approach. And, and you start to address that in this, this article. Can you give us just an overview of that? Yeah. And I'd like to do uh, address some of these questions, maybe in, in reference to your example there, Tim, because it, it I think it's, it's a great way to think about it. So, 
you know, why, why are electric cars not so great and other renewable energies? Well, it's because the, when you, when you look at the whole picture of how much, you know, they're um, emitting through the process of creating all of their parts um, and, you know, how they have to be transported around the world and whether the energy itself is sufficient to meet many of our other needs that are all um, in a part of the the ecological equation, then you know we're 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 missing that. Uh, I guess when we when you have a an understanding, um, and I, I think this speaks directly to the methodological challenges because sciences are often operating in their hyper specialized domains, and so science inevitably involves um, controlling for um, working within a, a, a controlled environment where you suspend um, connections to um, the rest of the world, you know, causal connections. Um, you use, uh, you know, very specific tools and assumptions to uh, understand causal relations in, in this very narrow domain. Um, and then, you know, naturally the, the desire is to go and take that and um, say that it applies in all of these other domains to understand what we should do, for example, about uh, environmental policy or you know, fossil fuel investments and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, it's a totally separate set of questions. You know, that I, I think this, this speaks to some of the, the, the main challenges here with narrowness of focus, um, you know, the, the tendency to reductionism, the, these sorts of things um, that, that really make people have tunnel vision of a, of a certain extent. Yeah. You know, I kind of go back to my, my guardrail example is even in areas like this with in scientific theory and others have, you know, I've had on the show have, have alluded to it is he gets so specialized, right? He gets through such hyper specialization, especially in fields like cancer research, that it's very difficult for people working in a specific type of cancer on a specific organ to use information from researchers who are working on a different cancer on a different organ even though there may be overlap and synergies there. Mm -hmm. And it's this hyper-specialization that has, I think, to our detriment, you know, forced, not just, it's an inefficient way to find the truth, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but it also, to your point, once you start to remove these causal connections to the outside world, you create these artificial environments within which to study mm -hmm. uh, these, these attributes and properties and even the sort of the evolution of, say, a cancer, you know, we, we lose a lot of information. Yeah. And we lose the ability to understand truly what's, what's happening. But how does your thoughts and in, in the, the, the work for Catholic Conscience, how would you approach trying to remove that, that hyper-specialization? What things do you think are going to be relevant to try to remove this, these artificial, or rather the approach of, of creating such a, 
a focused experiment that we just lose at this information? Where does Catholic social teaching and Catholic uh, teachings in general apply to help alleviate that? Mm -hmm. Great. So I'm going to take a quick outline of that and then also talk about some of the other methodological challenges because I think it'll help demonstrate why. So I'd say first that every every level of um, argument, inference, and general understanding um, that's derived from empirical scientific investigation has to be rendered into the, the level of philosophical explanation and understanding where you're using logic and inference about concepts that you've divine that you've defined and understood um, beyond their their merely uh, mathematized idealized um, representations so I would say like kind of recognizing that any type of unified understanding really really is at that level of logical inference and philosophical understanding but to to see why i think why that makes sense some of the other methodological challenges um have to do and we already talked about the idealized nature of the um experimental situation in which in which scientists are are involved in um but there there are problems of uh our ability to replicate studies and to generalize them, which stems really from the complexity of the experimental situation, especially with social sciences. So in, you know, when you do a study of, you know, a psychological study 50 years ago compared to today, the subjects inhabit an entirely different um, social imaginary which is to say, you know, their, their, their world is just completely different. Um, they, they behave in very different ways. They have, you know, different values, different norms, different institutions that, that make up and, you know, causally influence how they, how they interact. So, you know, for, for very rigorous um, replication, right, which, which is what you need to verify the the validity of um, scientific statements you need to have the same experimental situation that you're comparing and when the social imaginaries situations of of test subjects are are so different over time um that's just very hard to do and indeed that's that's something you know the replication challenges in the social sciences medicine even um that's something that's now well known in, in those fields and um, they're kind of struggling to to update um, and and deal with that those challenges but it's not something that I guess is is well known uh, in in the public that um, you know a lot of our our knowledge about um, where we express you know relationships between things uh, they're 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 really quite um, incomplete so that's one thing I think another, um is we we've increasingly moved towards mathematized representations of measurements of some local motion or or change and that, that's how we get ever more reduced understandings of of macro level 
properties, right? Like in chemistry, it's all defined as interactions with other substances and, you know, physics is a different level. And, you know, measurements are, are ultimately of some quantity and quantities are, are differentiated from qualities. Quantities have extension in, in space. But, you know, many aspects of reality, they just, they just don't have that feature. You know, a lot of the concepts we use, um, you know, are, are mental reality. But you'll note that in, you know, in, in, in doing science, which involves, you know, a lot of abstract concepts that are not uh, neatly um, reduced to mathematized uh, representations of measurements, you know, you're, you're using all of these sorts of things. So there's a lot of really philosophy going on there and, and maybe um, some, some erroneous uses of concepts um, that, that people are, are unaware of. Right. So you had, I think you're touching on two of your papers, one on replication, social imaginary, and the other one on quantifying qualities. So one of the things I've noticed especially since I've been doing a lot more analytics these past few years is that we try to represent reality by gathering as much data as we possibly can over long periods of time from many different modalities, whether it's text or audio or images or data from machines or internet devices and try to bring those together to understand the, the workings of some aspect of reality, whether it's to your point, human, human interactions or human behavior, or how do humans behave in some sort of a, a social environment or setting. And, and the one thing that I've, I've always struggled with is, you know, when I, when I was in astrophysics, you know, I could always fall back on the fact that, well, we have these mathematized forms of understanding we call the laws of nature, which I know will be consistent throughout the universe, at least I th we think they are. Mm -hmm. There's good reason to believe that. So that if we study certain galaxies, we know that, you know, how the emission mechanisms in the, in the nuclei of, of quasars or Seifert galaxies, that those will be uh, consistent mechanisms across space and time. But when I look at, and I've dealt with social scientists and talk with them and, and so on, there, there is no underlying law of physics mm -hmm. or nature. Well, I should say law of physics. It's, it's not possible to look at the things that soci sociologists or psychologists and others study and, 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 and not be able to derive some sort of a mathematical formalism to explain what goes on. So as a result, you're, you, you are left with, with just having to create experiments, observe people, take data that you think is going to help you understand the phenomenon you're trying to examine and be able to make credible comments and conclusions about about the phenomenon you're looking at mm -hmm. but i think to your point you really don't know all the variables that are contained in that 
you don't, you don't you're, you're trying to a lot of times set up experiments again, sort of artificially uh, and try to do, derive from them some understanding of human behavior, human psychology, but without that underlying formalism to, to help you provide a framework for kind of understanding your findings, you're left with, well, we take a lot of data and we have some hypotheses, but these are hypotheses based on our own values, our own biases, our own morals or lack thereof. And, and as a result, you find that there are no, there's no, there's no guardrails to keep people uh, and their hypotheses and findings within some sort of a moral uh, framework. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you end up with, you know, people who have these wild ideas about what humans are or how we should act. And, you know, they can make the data fit their, their outcome. I mean, the joke in analytics is, is, you know, you know what, first you write the paper with all your conclusions, <laughs> then you get the data, you know, and you make it, you know, you to, to back up your conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, I don't know, tell me I'm wrong, but within the social sciences, there is this, this, since there's, there's a lack of a, of a, of a, of a framework sort of based on a, a, um, a natural law that it's it's almost impossible to provide a set of a, a moral or values-driven framework from which to interpret these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to pick up on that. But on the topic of um, fundamental laws, I think it's, it's absolutely an apt characterization of, of the difference. Um, but even, you know, the fundamental laws, which are, you know, basically the, the the fundamental forces or forces some you know more complicated derivations thereof what makes those which are basically just consistent patterns of well they're, they're consistent patterns that describe forces and what what really is the the nuclear force or the you know the gravitational force or, or electromagnetism you know they're they're immaterial, but but nonetheless, the laws describe the behavior. I guess you could say, of material and immaterial reality. So you know the question of what what is fundamental there. The law as description of some kind of force and how it interacts, or is the law a description of um, you know that force plus the the properties of and the, the quantity of I guess you could say or density of, of matter in, in the universe so um, I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm challenging a bit the idea that the laws are um, perfectly uh, static and that there is some dynamism to it which I which I think we see in the um, you know the geo-christian understanding of the world is both ordered and and dynamic you know it's changed from the from the big bang onwards but a bit of an aside there um but to return to um your your point about you know the basis of the social sciences or how they really differ from the natural sciences i'd say it it lies primarily in the natural sciences are focused on the study of quantities and the social sciences really are dealing much more with qualitative realities and 
I would say they the these two realities differ in kind um, sub substantially. So exact science and natural sciences is the, the the quantitative study of quantitative aspects of objects, ultimately in motion. Like you understand things because you've observed how they move, and then you're able to describe that, measure it quantitatively, and they they use numbers as the differentiator. What what's characteristic of quantities is that they admit of categorical statements. You can say yes, no, is isn't about them. So you can you can measure it, its extension in, in space and how it moves uh, with with exactitude. Then when we're talking about qualities, qualities are fundamentally a matter of degree. You know, you, you can't point out to perception of color. Or you know a, a state of mind, um, you know uh, an evaluation of something, and go, oh, you know it's X number of, you know, uh, like some of the funny um, past examples that are still informs the way we think about things, right? It's you know happiness is this many, uh, you know, utility functions you you get out of something, or you know it's 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 this level of, of serotonin and different, you know, of chemicals uh, in, in your brain purely. And, and really, you know, a quality is not of something. It is not the kind of thing that admits of exact quantitative measurement. So there's really a kind of, there's a challenge there ultimately for, for the social sciences to um, even accurately claim to define and describe what what they claim to but i but i don't think it's it's fatal by any means and this this comes back to my my point in your earlier question about you know what what in philosophy or you know catholic thought can can unify and help answer some of these questions well it's i think in in every every bit of investigation it it begins and ends i guess you could say in in a type of uh, reasoned discourse about something. So returning to physics there and, and, and quantitative sciences, you're studying matter with, with measurements and you use numbers to, to do so. But math really, usage of numbers, it's a form of, of logic. It's not just observations of, of things. It is, it is a, you know, a, a language. So even to understand numbers and you know if we're talking about ai and, and formal systems in in mathematics you, know, you have to have axioms which are which are given definitions um, you have to use you know non non-numerical words to to give any kind of meaning to to the quantities that you're you're describing so so it's the point to to say that you know, at the beginning and end of any type of, of uh, empirical study, you have to identify and define concepts, you know, your terms and give them meaning, which you can only do by, you know, using your intellect, which abstracts from the physical properties of, of reality and, uh, you know, un understands them conceptually in a kind of way. And, and then, you're, then you're dealing with the whole world of qualities. So uh, it's a way to, to say that you're always dealing with philosophy 
at the at the beginning and end of empirical investigation. So, a couple things. One is, um, I think I agree with you on, on the comments you made about the the laws of nature. You know, our quantum field theory and and other you know quantum mechanics in general are very accurate in allowing us to understand and predict what's going to happen. Celestial mechanics were able to put a small satellite in orbit around Pluto using general relativity. So the the tools we have today are amazingly accurate. And certainly, you know, whatever the fundamental laws are, that these are certainly directionally correct and would be derivable from, you know, the true laws. Like, I'll give you an example is Newton's law of gravitation was uh, and still is very accurate, but it showed its weaknesses in certain situations that led to the development of general relativity, which, you know, we use quite a bit in celestial mechanics and other things. So we know general relativity is in some ways correct, but I, I also believe that they're not the, the true laws of that came out of creation, that there's something more fundamental to our reality that we haven't discovered yet, in which many of the things we use today, our theories, are just extensions of those, are, you know, emerge from those more fundamental things. And I agree, I think there's a more order to the creation than there appears to be at this point. That is, and I think we're, we're moving in a direction that is far more consistent with Catholic doctrine and beliefs than people may appreciate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, there's some, there's some interesting work going on, and I'm still trying to understand it. It's probably a long process. But the idea that even space-time itself emerged out of creation, and um, it's sort of this horrible mathematical, I should say horrible, it's, it's a very complex set of, of math to explain things that existed or, or I shouldn't say existed, um, from which you can get reality and things like space and time. Uh, so I think that you know, at some point in the future, you know, we'll recognize the you'll, we'll we'll recognize that our uh, beloved quantum field theory is really more like Newton's law of gravity than it is the end all and be all. You know, I, I, at some point, I think we we do stop peeling away at the onion, but. Yeah. But I also think it's 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 directionally into that more ordered approach that you know we talk and and believe in. You had two other papers you you talked about one or had on your uh, you've done work in is in values of science and then tension between the reductionist explanation, which you kind of covered already, I think thematically in some of your comments and things. But in terms of the values in science, what, what um, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So before I jump to that, I just want to pick up on on what you said there, um, Tim, about order and uh, dynamism and the quantum level, because I I it, I, I think they're they're both and and when and when we think about you know going down to that microstructure, micro level of reality, you know, people posit quantum indeterminacy and, and, and that sort of stuff. But, you know, it, I would say it would have to become necessarily less and less precise. Because, and, and this is a more philosophical point, because when you go down to the, the, the smallest 
degree, right? We're, we're shrinking in extension. But a point itself, like a tiny point, isn't a, a physical body. It's, it's uh, like a body in, in limitation. Because, you know, when we think about any, any quantitative part, it's, it's, it's part of a whole, like it's extended, right? So it, it's necessarily kind of, there's this dynamism between the one and the many. So, so naturally, we would expect to see something going in and out of actual existence at the, at the smallest level. And, and this is why I think, it, you know, it shows that atomism and materialism aren't, aren't quite right, because if the smallest parts were indivisible, they'd also be unchangeable. But, but we see, you know, everywhere that, you know, we experience reality as through observation of, of changeable uh, reality. So I, I think we can see at the, at the very basic level, then, you know, reality is comprised of this matter that is only uh only you know in in potential and then it's it's actualized it's continually actualized and this this kind of explains this this quantum dynamism at the at the base level how how things change and then the laws of nature how they're incredibly uh ordered and, and consistent it's just just a point about about that there in terms of values in science i think there there's a you, you could distinguish between epistemic values values that help guide inquiry and and then more normative ones so famously uh william of ockham monk and priest in, in the middle ages developed ockham's razor which is really the principle of parsimony we shouldn't multiply uh entities in order to explain some given phenomenon you know there's not not necessarily any reason why that needs to be the case right it's kind of like a heuristic like a like a decision heuristic a value that we that we use um maybe it's just because it's easier than you know or it's easier to reduce things than if we if we try not to multiply explanatory entities but it's it's unclear why that's why that's necessary and then it you know very much ends up dictating how science is is done uh we've already talked about reductionism um you know a, a preference for mathematized descriptions you know even elegance and and beauty right uh, understandability you know th these are all features of of um that are, are kind of epistemic in nature that very much guide the way in which scientists do things and you know you can't you can't give them a purely you can't reduce those values purely to things of uh empirical value i would say they uh they have some kind of pragmatic and they're you know they're related to some of our philosophical assumptions uh about things i've never been a fan of occam's razor i think it it provides people an out to uh you know, in, you know, to be intellectually lazy because it, it's, they can come up with a, oh yeah, well, this explains it. Let's move on. And, I, you know, it, and as I, always, I've always, can I, jump I'm in sorry. With an, can I just jump in with an example there? Because I think, um, well, let's, let's talk about genetics, right? People love to say, you know, oh, there's a, you know, 50%, 70%, whatever genetic association that explains this phenomenon. Right. And, and what it, what it, really does you know it if when we peel back the methodological assumptions we see that you know there these are genome-wide association studies of 
you know, large clusters of genes in populations of people, not individuals. And then the, the variation or, or the variance, I guess, in the population that's associated with a given set of traits, that, that is what is being associated with, with this given trait. And it, it leads to this simplistic assumption that, you know, oh, 50% of this is directly inherited or, you know, caused by um, genes, right? But there is so much of, it, it doesn't really explain anything about a particular person's life or even um, how maybe those genes came to be expressed. We know now through epigenetics that, um, you know, genes are regulated, switched on and off based on life events, you know, habitual behavior, um, all of these sorts of things. And so, you know, it, it really doesn't explain causally why, you know, a, a given trait um, develops. It, it kind of just says, you know, there's an association in the population with a large cluster of genes with this given trait, but doesn't say all the details are left out, right? Like all the causal details about um, how they become manifest and develop in, in a person's life. And, you know, maybe the trait itself is very um, kind of vaguely defined. And so I, I think it's just an example about how the, the values and assumptions um, that inform our scientific study really have a material impact on the knowledge uh, generated. Yeah. I, one thing I've, I've, I saw as a grad student and then as a PhD was, you know, at conferences or talking with people, this idea that scientists are open-minded and are, you know, willing to consider any sort of explanations or, or data was, was pretty much a, a, a farce. Um, I can remember having, I remember as a like graduate student. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're no different. And, you know, we, we saw that in spades with COVID unfortunately. And, you know, I just found it, it was one of those, those epiphanies as a grad student, you find that there are people who have a cognitive bias or, or a predisposition to a certain theory or approach or idea. And, you know, nothing short of dynamite will get them off that, that belief. And it's, uh, and again, it's just an inefficient way of doing science to begin with. But it's also disheartening when you run into that, yeah. and and it's not something that is is well addressed. It's you know part of it is you know people you know they're smart people, but they have huge egos, and they to your point much earlier on about how people how you know they're self directed. You know this is this is how it it manifests itself a lot of times, and that manifests as control over what's going on in a variety of ways and people's careers and as well as science theories and, you know, what things should be, where we should be spending our money and how, how the money should be spent, but also what's the right way to, to do science. And I think that, you know, your whole values and science piece was kind of screaming at me about how, you know, we, we, we really haven't, the, the approach we have now, I think is, is, is not going to allow us to to solve the more complex problems, especially, and, and, and I kind of come back then too. So how can Catholic scientists, you know, using, you know, our, you know, social teaching and 
our doctrines and taking the artifacts from Catholic consciences. You know, how, how do we start to address these very complex problems with the proper values and, and kind of moral framework that allow us to come to, that, you know, help us evolve and become more perfect? And mm-hmm. it's a struggle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, so on that, I'd, I'd completely agree. I think one of the issues is you need to both, I think, start with a properly defined normative ideal or goal. We often don't really have those, you know, in, in mind. And then we need to think about, as I was mentioning earlier, things holistically in the sense of their ecology, how they relate to one another. And then really try to do better at mapping that um, causally. So, you know, I, I think there are some, some tools hypothetically for this, right? Like the, this is what the Catholic view affords. It affords a normative view of the human person and human social life and what our tendencies are, what fulfills us, what, you know, completes us. And then we can start thinking about that scientifically, developmental terms, right? Like we need to friends, role, the family, all of these things that are in Catholic social teaching. But, you know, rather than do it the way we do it now in public policy, for example, which is through indices, which are kind of like reductive snapshots of associations of, you know, say education or lifespan or mortality rates or those sorts of things. And think about um, what are the important like node networks of causal relationships that you know with this developmental lens of how people you know develop and kind of maintain their well-being over time um how how do we you know think of modeling that differently you know the 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 catholic view with you know you have virtues and you have uh, powers and capacities and, and tendencies um, we can think about, you know, maybe mapping that out, tools of, of causal modeling, something that my uh, my um, counterpart at the Beauty of Creation series, Jeff Willard, is, um, is very interested in. So that's something actually we're, we're kind of exploring now and uh, may, may try to bring that forward in a, a paper at some point, think tank. Cool. I'll look forward to it. Let me ask you this, kind of wrap it up. I've, I've been reading through a book by Michael Hanby about uh, No God, No Science. And it's it's not a, a book for the faint-hearted, for sure. He talks about essentially bringing Christian creation metaphysics needs to be reintroduced back into science. And that's a very poor summary of the book. But it, it kind of sounds like in taking what you've been discussing kind of in toto, that sort of sounds like what you are are at least attempting mm-hmm. to do no I, th- I think it's i think it's fair to say uh tim is, is that is that your question yes. yeah um i i think it's fair to say you don't you never want to come with just as you were saying earlier you know your whole kit and caboodle and you just here's my conclusion i'm going to fit it, fit the rest into it now um but luckily you know the catholic intellectual tradition and its concepts have been empirically developed and tested by, you know, great deal of experience. Um, you know, even the the um, you know kind of seeds of the the scientific revolution, obviously developed in, in Christianity. 
you know, it's, it's many of these concepts that are in fact, um, yeah, they're, they're meta, meta scientific concept. That's a, that's a term from, uh, Benedict, uh, Ashley, great, uh, philosopher of science uh, from the States that I've taken quite a, uh, an interest in. They're concepts that are very much derived from our empirical investigation of the world, but they are themselves more general and they're not amenable to the kind of verification and, and direct usage in, in um, particular sciences, but, but they very much unify and explain at this, at this higher level. So I, I, think, I think all to say a lot of what's in the Catholic intellectual tradition is very much empirically derived, and it, it is at a level of generality that is very much um, missing and needed today, both within the sciences and in applying them to the world of public policy and our, our lives as citizens because they have this epistemic value and this practical value. You know, in the sciences, the tunnel vision is really preventing us from you know, valid uh, statements and inferences um, because it, it's just not, it's missing the bigger picture, right? missing the, the greater connections. It's leading to overly simplistic explanations. And same with how we think about you know, how we should live. Right, we, we can't have a reductive understanding of, you know, how we should live. I need to, uh, you know, measure my, you know, the vitamins and minerals and all of my, my uh, meals, and I need to, you know, exercise for thirty minutes. And I need to, you know, it's like, no, that's that's you're not going to get healthy that way. You're going to end up unhealthy in some ways. You know, missing what, what life is all about. I'd say, you know, in answer to your question, it's it's introducing a lot of things, not a full, you know. Um, copy-paste <laughs> metaphysics necessarily because it needs to be always developed and deepened and and you know further understood but but some of these key principles I think um, definitely can be used by scientists and thinkers when they're when they're thinking about how to deepen their understanding and you know extend it beyond the the doors of their their discipline okay thanks now the last topic I think we wanted to cover was around intelligence. And, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, I come at it from the artificial intelligence side of the world. And, you know, my beliefs, I, I think I'm clear. I don't know if, I don't think I'm in the minority in some of these, but this whole idea that AI is an existential threat to humanity, I frankly, is just a load of bollocks from my perspective. I'm sorry. I, I, this whole idea of artificial general intelligence to create an AI system that's as, as intelligent as a human being. Again, I'm, I'm not buying it. I mean, the joke amongst a lot of us is AGI doesn't stand for artificial general intelligence. It stands for artificial greed, Inc., because there's so many people out there promising AGI and getting, you know, venture capital and private investment monies to do the work and, you know, they're all coming up short. They all talk a good game. But, you know, my mind, you know, a quick, real quick divergence. So when somebody says AGI to me, I say, okay, well, can they pass the Tommy Lasorda test for AGIs? And, you know, I kind of got a blank stare. I said, listen, here's an AGI for you. His name is Tommy Lasorda. All right. 
And Tommy Lasorda has a friend, Vince. And Vince has a son, Mike. And Mike loves baseball. And Mike is constantly practicing baseball. Even on Christmas Day in Pittsburgh, he's outside in the snow and, and ice um, hitting in, into the, uh, you know, using the, the, the batting machine. And Mike gets, uh, he goes to University of Miami and he doesn't play a lot of baseball. So he ends up going to Dade County Community College where he plays baseball. And Vince asks Tommy, who's in the Dodger organization, to get a Dodgers draft Mike. And Tommy hems and haws, and he says, I'll do what I can. Well, anyway, in the 62nd round in the draft for uh, baseball players, the Dodgers finally take Mike, uh, but they don't offer him a contract. And Tommy is talking with the scouts and the people who are looking at him. You know, they have a, a combine, and, you know, Tommy is is asking him, you know, you need to sign this kid, even if it's a $15,000 contract. And the scouts are saying, yeah, I don't know. And finally, Lasorda says, well, what position, because at the time, Mike played first base. And they said, well, maybe he was a catcher. So Tommy goes, all right, he's a catcher. And they send him to some catching schools, one in Mexico, I think. And he plays in a number of minor leagues. And finally, years later, he's, he's called up to the Dodger organization. He plays his first major league game. And 15 years later, 20 years later, Mike is inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. So what Tommy Lasorda did for Mike Piazza, right, that's an AGI. What AGI can do that? Right. Until you can have an AGI system, you know, artificial intelligence system that can do what Tommy Lasorda did with Mike Piazza. Um, you know what? I, I, I don't, I'm not going to believe that something like this can be created because what Tommy Lasorda did is the, is the essential qualities of how immaterial processes are manifest. Mm -hmm. Right. No amount of data. <laughs> could allow an AI to do what Tommy Lasorda did, right? He, it, 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 there is no data. So how are you going to create an AGI to do what Tommy Lasorda did? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Turing test is cute. I don't mean to be disparaging, but, you know, it, it's, it's a good idea. It's a start, but, you know, it has some weaknesses. But in my mind, unless an AGI can can do what Tommy Lasorda did, you know, he, he's the epitome of, of how the brain functions using immaterial processes. Mm -hmm. So with that, you, you, I'll let you talk about your concept yeah. of intelligence, but that's where, you know, my mind is at. Yeah, no, well, we should, you should propose the Lasorda test to replace the Turing test. <laughs> I think, uh, I think this, this really gets at, and I'll try to maybe draw out what I think uh, is implicit, maybe not the way you're thinking about it, but the way I think about intelligence in that example, which is this capacity for abstraction from the empirical realities to to understand concepts in, in another way that is, yes, immaterial. So, you know, AI, the way it's conceived, um, as I understand it, there are 
processes and fundamental constraints are put into it. And, you know, it operates on the basis of these axioms, algorithmic coefficients, basically running a program, uh, which is which is not general intelligence at all. It's you know following rules that have uh, been pre-programmed for it. You know, it can learn through uh, machine learning and, and things like that, but it's still very much within preset parameters. You could maybe say the same thing about humans. You know, we have genes, but I think there's some fundamental differences here. So really, what what's, what is general intelligence or what is intelligence? General intelligence could be said to have many components, which include, you know, sensory and motor perception, action, sensing, processing, computing, logical inference, problem solving, like that. But fundamentally, um, you know, at least according to, uh, you know, many of our great philosophers, Aquinas and Aristotle, notably, intelligence involves the intellect, faculty of the mind, abstracting formal features from an object of sense perception, um, or, you know, interior perception, or, or a, a purely uh, mental construct through the, through the imagination. So, you know, crucially here that the contents of this process of abstraction are not uh, empirical. They, they can't be traced um, directly to empirical features of reality. And, and that's what, you know, so these arguments go, um, leads us to postulate the intellect as, as immaterial. And there, there are two basic um, arguments there. I'd love to get your, your thoughts uh, about them, Tim. So, you know, there's, there's this fundamental difference between, as you described, a, uh, you know, a concrete sense image, you know, maybe that we imagine in our minds, uh, and an abstract concept that is derived or developed from it. You know, so we can get a generalized image, but ab abstract concepts, they, they do just as the name imply, they abstract away the individual differences from a, you know, from a, a sensory impression to retain only what is essential and specific, to have no, no features of that sense experience or, or the materiality of it, to have, you know, uh, a representation of its, as of its extension, for example. And, you know, we, we see that um, in, in numbers and in, you know, conceptions of things that have removed all of those um, empirical sense sensory features, and so the the conclusion is that since the that conceptual act is itself abstract and free of the the details of the you know the object of what it is um, related to, um, then the intellect couldn't be just a you know a purely material process, part of the material brain, and and the second is based on our second argument for this is based on our capacity for uh, self-consciousness or reflectivity you know, this is a fundamental property of the mind so when we when we engage in self-reflection we're you know we're, we're taking this you know viewing the viewer kind of view right we're we're, we're objectifying or, or or noticing our very act of reflection so it's like a higher order and we're, we're making that known to ourselves and again, if, if that were material, it would have quantity and extension, but but fundamentally, and the, the you know it would appear to our consciousness as a as a kind of sensible object. 
but you know the 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 process of, of self-knowing has none of these features it's it's just this is our you know our our our, our self-conscious reflectivity which i think is characteristic of intelligent experience right it's like it's like how we understand things that's this is our our experience of understanding it's it's like this synthetic unity it, it it does not have quantity and extension it is not related in any way to other you know empirical features of, of reality that that we get through our senses it is you know the the intellect abstracting um these you know intelligible features of of reality um and you know it is crucial to intelligence you know you, you need to have this capacity for abstraction dealing with you know, this other type fundamentally of reality in order to even engage in the type of inference and you know processes that are that are really being used by you know quote unquote um artificial intelligence systems you know so we're kind of doing all of the the the, the programming and we have the capacity to understand and use our intellects you know actually in an intelligent fashion not in a rote following out following a, a script fashion and you know so intelligence really involves fundamentally this this capacity yeah so you know one of the things is that and this is a danger is you could have a good enough ai that it simulates human beings and their behaviors and a lot of processes and things uh, very well but in no way shape or form does that prove it's conscious mm -hmm. or self-aware or, or anything like that it just means it's a a really good computer program mm -hmm. okay you know i was much younger actually i don't even think i was 10 years old i, I got kind of stuck on this problem about you know why is it i'm sitting here on this little league bench looking out you know from you know somewhere inside this body at all these other players why am i not looking outside of somebody else's eyes what is it about me that is that you know puts me in this body, you know, and what is it that's in the body that makes me, you know, know who I am and be able to think and imagine and fantasize and and you know all that kind of good stuff or understand the rules of baseball and and know without any data that um, just by looking at some kid, I know he's going to drop a fly ball when it comes to him, right? Mm -hmm. In literally. Right, you just—I have no data other than I look at him and say, "Yeah, he's like a castable," and I didn't understand, you know. And 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 that's what really, you know, I kind of have a real um, memory of this, and 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 that—that's always kind of stuck with me about what is it, you know? That just example, just you know, writ large now, and. And, and, and just that one little example, but now writ large, you know, I can never believe that we can simulate this sort of a understanding and being able to abstract ideas and imagine new things and have an understanding of, of and ask questions that, you know, you have no a priori understanding of, but somehow intuitively you know, you need to find out. Mm -hmm. And 
when it comes to intelligence, you know, there's something far more fundamental about us that, uh, again, we, we certainly don't understand it. And it, but it, it transcends this whole idea of our brain and conscious being the computer because, you know, regardless of how powerful our brain is as a computational device, I, I still don't see how it can allow us to have all these creative ideas and thoughts, a self-awareness, an ability to, to just look at something and automatically understand it. And, and, that's, and, and I think that kind of gets to why we as human beings, we, aren't, we can never be a Turing machine. There's something inher- inherently different about us uh, that, you know, from animals and other living organisms. It, it clearly, to me, we, we talked before about order and this, and this drive to perfection. Um, it seems to me that that, that is, is, is what this is about, that our, our, our minds, this, this conscious we have, you know, I don't know how it relates to the soul. I'm not smart enough to understand it. But there's something inherent in us that, that drives us toward this perfection that no computer program or even a rational explanation of intelligence or conscious could ever capture. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. I, I... No, it's it definitely does. I mean, ultimately, and it, it returns, though, to the point we were discussing earlier about quantum reality at the basis of, you know, what appears to be purely kind of, uh, you know, a kind of mechanistic or kind of, you know, quasi-deterministic, um, you know, classical physics level. Right. But but we know there isn't just there would just be kind of stasis and no change if if things were just you know deterministic based on that that argument about how we understand, you know, to, to change, you have to have something out of which it can change or it has to be somewhat incomplete. And so, you know, at, at the at the basic level, at the quantum level, we we recognize that, um, you know, there's a limit to how small something can be. You know, it, it kind of fluctuates in and out of um of that state and same with our you know our, our conscious activity and you know other other animals have some degree of that you know there is i think i think quite clearly an immaterial aspect of of reality i mean every moment of our lives is experienced with consciousness which is fundamentally characterized by um, you know, this property of intentionality, which is just that our consciousness is about something else. Every physical property is, you know, every physical thing is simply its its properties. It can't represent or be about anything else. And as we see with AI, you know, much of AI is just algorithms with constraints to carry out a certain function. It, it doesn't have to do with abstraction and understanding um you know, it doesn't have this property of intentionality which is you know it's necessarily immaterial how can you be about you know directed towards something else without being self-identical with it? it it has to be immaterial you know and then this is this is reality you know we use our intellects to understand the semantic significance the meaning of abstract concepts which are which are not material um, yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of how I, I think about it. There's this, there's this dynamism between order and, and, uh, you know, creativity that comes from this immateriality at the basis of physical reality. 
and in our own, you know, organism, our mind. The other day I was, uh, I saw this, this, I guess it was a YouTube video. It was of a chimpanzee who completed the, um, you know, the, the ninja warrior set of, uh, obstacle course. Oh yeah. And, and the chimpanzee did it in, in absolute record time. I mean, beat the best human time by a factor of five or something. It was ridiculous. But I sat there and wa- you know, and watching, I was like, you know, the chimpanzee has no awareness of, of, you know, what the significance is that they're doing, right? They're simply just carrying out a set of tasks that they are mechanically optimized for, but there is no awareness there of even the ability to understand what that is all about. Mm-hmm. And the way I look at it, there's, there's no way to, sure, I can build a robot to do what the chimpanzee did, but there's no way I can inculcate into a robot why that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. What, what, the, what do other people think and why people are cheering or why people are liking it on, mm-hmm. on YouTube? That part of, of what makes us human I think is is that's I think it's just an example of what sets us apart is the robot can do what the chimpanzee did, but the the robot can't be thrilled about it. They can't be happy about it. And there's there's no and and for us to pro yeah, I can program happiness into a robot by making the robot's lights blink on and off and, and simulating it. But you know, the there's no way code can can actually to um, make a mechanical device happy, mm-hmm. and and to me that's part of intelligence. Um, you know, I want to get to your journey as a Catholic because mm-hmm. you're the first person who is a convert I've had on the show. But the last thing I wanted to cover was um, faith and reason. Ooh, right? Yeah. You know, how do faith and reason? You know, how do you understand it? Because there is a lot of noise in the system out there about how they're in conflict. So how do you, how do you come at this? I think there are two ways of viewing it. Um, viewing, you know, faith and science or reason as different ways of knowing. And then, you know, kind of the, the deposit of faith or, you know, like the, the religious tradition and the truth claims of science. And so one is, you know, the process or method of knowing and the other is the body of knowledge. So kind of the terms are used, I think. So it's good to separate them. So, the way I think about it, faith is supra-rational. So it's not reasoned belief, but you know it follows reason all the way, and then it goes beyond where it, where it points, very much points all in one direction, and then just goes beyond that. And we see, you know, in our lives, all of the theological gifts, faith, hope, and charity, and you know all of the gentleness, peace, and and blessedness that that it brings. We see that you know it is indeed very rational to want those things, um, but to have them, to seek them out, we have to go beyond reason and walk by faith, which is you know to be animated by this abandoned belief in the goodness of the Lord that we see all of these indications of. Right? We we faith is is trusting in people you know i have all this observation of someone you know i understand some things about them but i don't know what they're going to do next i don't know if they're gonna you know um do do me right do me wrong right but 
if I am ever to go beyond this, you know, this kind of like, um, I see this, I can only see this, I will only believe that, I will only do that, then, you know, you're just living in a, in a cocoon, right? And, and um, so I think it helps really with these purely rational activities, because it helps us to go beyond our quandaries that reason inevitably is mired in, you know, there, there are no, there are no ultimate definitive proofs that dispel all doubt, empirical or logical, that, you know, are not themselves more or less useless for our deepest needs. You know, we can't, we don't see the principle of non-contradiction or, you know, sufficient reason that there's a cause for everything or, you know, the law of identity, things are what they are. They don't, you know, they, they help us with, with certain things, you know, they're the guardrails, but they don't deliver us too much certainty. And that's why we need, we need faith. You know, faith, faith helps us, you know, practically and with theoretical endeavor and in, you know, in, in experiencing love and, and all of these most important things about life in, in just, you know, the deepest way. That's why, that's why Jesus speaks about faith so much. You know, believe in me, believe in me. It's very, uh, you know, it's funny. It's so, it's so simple, right? And, you know, quote, smart people don't like to talk about faith, but boy, are they ever missing something, right? Like it's, I think it's yeah. just incredible. Um, how you know, faith is. you know, one of your paper, one of your papers, you talked about how it seems like scientists are trying to avoid the concept of God and faith in in trying to figure out, say, for example, coming up with ideas like the multiverse, um, and in trying to find ways of of getting back to a you know their version of a prime mover, and the one thing that's fully actualized that we can begin to actualize it 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 was really interesting because even with Bertrand Russell's um approach to this you know they always they always get to a point where it's well yeah i've just i've just sort of pushed back you know when you know my explanation to something else now yeah <laughs> and they and never and they never get to that that final state because uh, just because you now have multiverse where a million or an infinite number of universes from which ours is one that just happens to have all the right values of the of uh, the uh, fundamental constants for life to arise, uh, but you know the other universes probably don't. Well, okay, fine. So then, where did they all come from? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it seems to me you've made the problem a little more difficult. You've gone to where did this universe come from? To where did the infinite number of universes come yeah, from? Yeah, it's just the avoiding God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I I think you know to your point, you know a proper inclusion of of you know a, a creation and metaphysics part of the interplay with faith and reason, you know, starts to give you that, that understanding of creation from, from nothing and starts to allow you to at least envision a, a, we'll call it a starting point, but you know, how, how did, given that there is this prime mover, this, this fully actualized being, yeah, that, that, that is a, a, a starting point or the, the way of looking at how, the things we can see in our reality came to be, mm-hmm. but there is just this uh, very strong bias, actually so strong. strong value, a value against, you know, conceiving of and 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 
reasonably talking about including God into the idea of 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 how we got something from nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I actually think you know, <laughs> scientists just uh, did a little more uh, digging and philosophizing uh, a bit. Um, you know, the, the, the faith of the church in the second sense of which I was referring to it, the, you know, the dogmas and the teachings, very much easy to see how aligned they are with contemporary science and how it's even shedding more light on them, I think, in some ways. But, you know, it also in the second sense of, of, of faith, or we talk about the deposit of faith, you know, a lot of the church's teachings are, uh, you know, they, they pronounce on faith and morals, Right. Um, right. And so this is where a lot of the conflict, I think, today comes with, with faith and science. People say, oh, you know, this I was not what, you know, psychology or whatever, fine. Um, so, you know, obviously empirical observation can and does inform the moral norms we observe and how we interpret the revelation of our faith. And in some respects, those observations change the way we interpret these things. But in other respects, they don't. And when I, you know, I think about some of these live questions, it's it's really about what science may say about our predisposition to certain behaviors or traits and things of that um, of that nature. But you know, in reality, the deposit of faith and morals on these issues it isn't really seriously affected by such considerations because we all struggle with various tendencies and are called, you know, to to the cross and suffering out of love to overcome whatever our particular difficulties may be, you know, so we may become more pastorally sensitive and accepting of people and all their complexity, but it doesn't really fundamentally alter the way we understand the normative standards, you know, which is really what a lot of faith is about. Again, going going um, slightly beyond um, what is just descriptively uh, available um, and what bring us closer to, to God. And again here, you know, many of these the statements of the faith they're about predictions about what can make us happy and 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 things of that nature the idea that some some contemporary science suggests that you know th- those things aren't in fact what uh make us happy or fulfill us um i i think the problem just lies very clearly with the meaning of terms that they're using yeah you know, they just have different understandings of the term so it's a problem of of translation um and no no real um threat or questions in those domains i find okay so why don't we move on to your uh journey as a catholic here so you converted to catholicism and it's, it from our discussions and things it sounded like it was a a, a very not just interesting but a fairly it has a lot to tell us about people's Catholic faith and, 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 and what it means to them and their families. Yeah. So I am a convert. I came into the church just a few years ago, but I would say it's uh, it was a long time coming many signs along the way that, you know, I look at in retrospect and can say that they were contributing parts to it. So I already mentioned Lord of the Rings, definitely one of them. <laughs> and, but it was first, you know, intellectual for me as it was searching for answers um, and found in you know Catholicism just this this comprehensiveness, this unity, this wisdom testing over many many generations that you know willingness to to answer all questions that I you just you just don't find anywhere else uh, quite quite frankly. But it really became real 
when I let Christ into my heart to heal wounds. And it's the it's the problem with so many philosophies and lifestyles, you know, it's that they're they're incomplete. They don't make the real difference in your life and the lives of others. They have no they have no staying power. Catholicism is is just it's just not like that. It's the fullness, the truth, supremely intellectual and complex. Uh, yet, you know, the fundamental teaching is that Christ's yoke is light and the truths of the faith are ultimately simple and for all people. And, you know, I, I was really stunned actually to see that in you know the pews of the Catholic Church, every social class is there sitting side by side. And it's just, I just don't don't see that in many other other places. It's remarkable. I would say probably most importantly, my uh, my now wife and her family definitely showed me what the faith looked like in practice. Communitarian lifestyle uh, compared to my uh, more individualistic upbringing. You have a, a reverence for and love of tradition and family and. You know, just a general sense of treating things as though they have inherent value, which I, I attribute that to the sacramentalism in Catholic thought, as opposed to the way that, you know, we tend to see things as ultimately meaningless, you know, things that can be just used or abused for your own purposes. So, you know, it was really intellectually answers to the deepest questions and then letting Christ uh, into your heart and, and seeing it, uh, lived out in Catholic life. That's great. Yeah. I think the intellectual part is what really, you know, finally, I think given my vacillations over time, it's the intellectual part, the way it just all kind of hangs together mm -hmm. and just makes complete sense compared to others. Uh, that really sort of cemented my, my beliefs and my commitment. It's interesting. You know, I had difficult parts of my, you know, I was a cradle Catholic, but I still had difficult parts to my, um, my journey. Um, what about yourself? Any kind of ups and downs or stall outs like I had and things? Yeah, there's, there's one, well, I'd, I'd say kind of where, where I'm at now, you know, maybe some of the luster's worn off and the, the culture seems very radically opposed <laughs> to Christian faith. So I, I feel kind of like I'm boarding a sinking ship at the time. <laughs> but then I look, you know, I look at the history of the church and uh, see, you know, there's always undergone difficult times. When in fact, it's in those times when the ways of the world and the opinions of many lay faithful have perhaps been against the core teachings of the church that, you know, martyrs and truly holy people arise and breathe new life into it. I think I think we had that actually with 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 um, some some recent popes and it's not taking effect right away, but I think it'll seep in. But especially today, you know, people want they want witnesses. They don't want people who evangelize primarily with arguments, but with their testimony. You know, bringing their whole being. You know, they say, "See how they love one another," instead of the early Christians. And um, you know, maybe. Maybe more difficult for, for people like you and I, Tim, who like to uh, argue, you know, and understand things uh, <laughs> intellectually. That's right. But, you know, um, I'm slowly learning, uh, I, I hope. And, um, 
So that's one challenge. And then another practical one for me is just the believing in the primacy and power of prayer. You know, like that, that always seemed kind of, uh, it seemed to create crazy to my old self. Like, how do you pray to God and they listen, you know, acts through the world? It's like, what is that? I don't get that. And I think the difficulty is in the fact that, you know, you, you can't actively or neatly differentiate any experience qualitatively or quantitatively as like resulting from some prayer rather than some other, you know, substitute activity. So it seems like something that you just do and you get the same results from something else. But um, to the other point about faith, it's, it's, I just come to learn how true it is that, you know, it's all about your interior life and your interior disposition. And you genuinely believe when you pour out your heart to God in humility and you develop that inner peace through contemplation, through sincerity and contrition about your failings and then you know, petition, humility and love that, oh man, it's just so powerful, uh, so powerful. And um, all of those things, those are things what we do when we believe in uh, the Christian God, who's a God with a very definite nature being revealed to us. You know, so so in that way, you know, faith is its own proof. It's it's in living these things that you see that that prayer, you know, characterized in this very rich kind of qualitative sense are you know, proof is in the pudding. But they're not they're not scientific proofs, right? They're deep experiential proofs that are born out in experience, but in a very complicated way. You know, the most the most profound truths are are, are of that kind. And it's like the whole, you know, the comprehensiveness of the Catholic intellectual tradition and history. It's like, yeah, you gotta, gotta learn a little bit to see just how amazing it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that, that one challenging part for me was just belief in the power of prayer. You know, initially I was, you know, you know, why should God listen to me? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just a bum from Newark, New Jersey. You know, you have to believe in that God listens and, and, you know, you have to just, it's that perseverance piece. Any other kind of area of, of Catholic doctrine that you find challenging? Okay, on a practical level, it would be uh, solidarity, uh, care for the poor, you know, the, the kind of, the works of mercy, you know, the, the old man, the old self, me, you know, very, very focused on accomplishment and achievements and stuff. I have trouble with weakness and um, you know, in myself and in others. So I, I just, you know, it's just been harder for me to, you know, to, to, to kind of engage in that and make it a practice, but prayer really helps a lot. And having, you know, a lot of people I, I learn from in my, you know, my parish community and through Catholic conscience and, and everything. So I think that one comes from your personality, right? Like everyone has a thing about church teaching. This is like, just harder for you to do. So that's, yeah. that's one of them, but other, you know, this, I, I, I get frustrated when I see, you know, people saying, you know, this church teaching about whatever is, oh, it's unscientific or whatever. And kind of alluded to earlier, it, it's really just a, a translation problem. So I think it's, it's again, you know, understanding that you're dealing with very different definitions of, of, of things, you know, very kind of crude understandings of what, you know, maybe identity is or what fulfills us and stuff like that, or what like determines it. And, you know, that's, that's just the state of things now, but, but I don't think, I don't think they're, 
or any things that really make me question. It's just, it's just frustrating. I find. Yeah. 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 I get frustrated and people, you know, suddenly just automatically trans back in, transact back into, well, that doesn't make sense scientifically. Yeah. It's like, all right, you're in my swim lane now. Let's have a discussion. But then, you know, it, it, it doesn't go much further than that because they don't understand. Now, I do get that with transubstantiation, mm-hmm. but I have found a recent uh, article in, in, philosoph- in a philosophical magazine or journal, rather, peer review that, that does explain it rather to my satisfaction anyway. So even things like that still have at least a, uh, a philosophical rationale mm-hmm. uh, that makes sense. You know, it doesn't have a scientific rationale at all. So when I, when people say, well, that makes sense from a science perspective, I said, well, it doesn't, but it does make sense from philosophical perspective, right? Because right. it's really faith and reason and, you know, science is part of reason. It's not mm-hmm. equate to reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, Absolutely. the last topic I have with my guests is just if there's any topic they want to cover at all, you know, let, let you, um, uh, Go ahead and discuss it. So is there anything you want to talk about? Well, just to pick up on that theme I mentioned earlier about science and public policy, that interface there. So, you know, and you alluded to it and then the pandemic a bit, right? You have, you know, these, you know, kind of a, a narrow set of, um, you know, empirical observations you've made. And then you've determined that this criterion or goal is the desirable or scientific one. Um, and then, and then there's the question of, you know, what should we do to, to, you know, achieve that? And, you know, I think we, we can just see here based on what, all that we've said that both, you know, in, um, this, this tendency among people who think this way to identify a very narrow, you know, range of considerations and objectives, and then a very narrow kind of approach to achieve them as strictly speaking scientific are is um you know it, it it's not um scientific the, the even the normative question of what we should do involves value judgments and you know the, the consideration of all of the side effects and trade-offs and the economic questions that you, know, you name it all of these things have to be factored into the uh, equation so to speak and just you know the regnant way of thinking about science know take some scientific finding um that's really very narrow in scope and then saying it has implications for so many other things is just um it's just very unscientific and um so figuring out how to do this better science public policy interface you know i think we, we need more uh renaissance men and women who you know have this broader picture the integrated use of reason we're missing the forest for the trees you know, we need to have an understanding of different normative models that I alluded to earlier, you know, so I, I think we need an understanding of, you know, what is human nature and what fulfills us. Otherwise, we won't, you know, we don't know where we're going. And um, I think rather than using indices and thinking about things in very uh, kind of uh, fragmented, uh, siloed manners, we need a, you know, a more rigorous empirical model of, of mapping, you know, the, the relationships between um, different variables in the equation. And um, I, I would, 
we're, we're looking at, uh, I'm looking more into causal modeling um, for that. Not saying it, it has, uh, it has all the promise, but um, you know, some of these big themes, I think are important to consider thinking about how, how we, how science informs public policy better. You know, the one thing, the whole COVID experience, you know, it, it felt like one, the science wasn't well understood, but, but that our, our leadership over the last few years, they, they, they cherry pick the science to achieve certain political outcomes, whatever those outcomes would be. And certainly at the local state and federal level. And I think one of the, the outcomes is, is, you know, I see it anecdotally is people really don't like scientists. They, they, you know, science used to have a, a bit of a panache to it in terms of its dependability and respect. But after COVID, people have seemed that they have, they, they look at scientists who, who were clearly have political agendas and politicians who use the science for their own ends, uh, whether that was more control, you know, ensuring their reelections and so on for, for whatever reasons they had. And it, it felt wrong. And, you know, when I've talked to other Catholic scientists, you know, they, they voice frustration that our profession just came out so tarnished in being used in being used and also contributing and participating in the the more political outcome and making the science fit the political science versus simply allowing the science to inform us mm-hmm. and i i found it very i still find it frustrating because there's vestiges of governments that you know local state federal governments where they 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 still it's almost as if they want to have covid around because it it makes it easier for for them to achieve their aims which they can't say achieve legislatively or through public policy whereas i think we as catholics need to your point push this whole interface between science and po- public policy so we do come up with you know, the right ordered, rightly ordered approach to things. But I, I think that's a, that's a huge order. ask. Yeah. yeah it uh, starts small, but absolutely. yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Peter, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Certainly the longest one I've had on the podcast. I really, I, I don't know about you. I, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. I got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of reading your articles and, and the Catholic Conscience website's artifacts have been really helpful and informative. And I'll put the links to the to your stuff and to the websites in the podcast. Well, thank um, you so much, Tim. I notes. enjoyed it uh, immensely. And, and uh, thank you so much. For that. And this is a wonderful thing you're doing. I mean, you've had some, uh, I count myself uh, a real outlier here. You've had some uh, amazing um all qualified scientists on here. It's just heartening for me to to know. Um, doesn't seem like there are so many, um, you know, publicly identifying Catholic scientists in in Canada. And um, that's this just a fantastic thing that you're you're doing. So I will be sure to uh, spread the word. And uh, best of luck to you. Thanks very much. Thank you.